Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me this morning to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. And in a moment, we're going to read just two verses in God's Word. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. There was an article that came out a few years ago titled, Japan Goes Wild for Ho Ho Holiday. This is a nation in which there are very few Christians, but according to this article, everyone celebrates Christmas. This article describes extravagant gifts with long lines of people outside of stores in the days leading up to Christmas Day. Uh, It describes choirs singing the same carols that we sing every year. It says that in residential areas, nearly every single door is adorned with a Christmas wreath or an image of Santa Claus. Here is a nation where less than 1% of the people would claim to have been born again, and yet everyone is celebrating even though they may not know what exactly they are celebrating or why exactly they are celebrating it. There was one man named Hatsuko who was quoted in this article. He said that he's been celebrating Christmas for decades, but he said, and I quote, I do not know what Christmas is all about. My daughters heard about it and wanted us to celebrate. So we put a Christmas tree in the living room and a flower pot shaped like Santa in the entryway, and we just have a nice time. Now, this goes to show you that you can make all sorts of preparations for Christmas and go through the motions of Christmas and still not understand what Christmas is all about. You know, here in the United States, we prepare for Christmas in many different ways. For example, by raising your hands, how many of you have a Christmas tree in your home? Okay, how many of you will drink eggnog this season? Great, more for me. Um, How many of you uh, will buy at least one Christmas present for your pastor? Man, that is fantastic. How many of you will be traveling to see someone for the holiday? Amen. How many of you have that special recipe that you only pull out and prepare at Christmas? How many of you will watch at least one Christmas movie? How many of you have already seen Elf ten times? Confession is good for the soul. You know what? All of these things are fine and well But if we're not careful, just like the people I mentioned in that article, you can make all of these preparations and still miss the point of what Christmas is all about. And I'm here today to tell you that whatever preparations we make for Christmas this year, it will not compare to the preparations that God himself made that first Christmas. Now, if you are familiar with the book of Galatians, you know that part of the reason why Paul wrote this book to the churches 
in Galatia was to admonish them and to warn them because many of the Christians in these churches were tending to go back to the law as if they could utilize the law to make themselves righteous before God. Paul writes them to remind them that they didn't have to do that. And in our passage this morning, this short passage, it's kind of like a window of Christmas. Paul is going to argue that you do not have to produce your own righteousness by keeping the law, which is good because you couldn't anyway if you had to. But Jesus came from heaven to earth at Christmas to provide that righteousness for us. Now, in these two verses, I believe we are going to see two ways that God prepared the world for the birth of Jesus. Since it's a short passage, I'd like us to just all read these two verses out loud together, starting in Galatians 4, verse 4. Say it with me. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, two ways in which God prepared the world for that very first Christmas. First of all, God prepared by orchestrating history. By orchestrating history. Notice that phrase in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come. That word, fullness, in the original language was used many times of a woman who was pregnant and who was ready to give birth at any moment. It's kind of like Paul is saying, when time itself was pregnant, in the fullness of time. In other words, God moved and God sent his only begotten son into the world at just the right moment when the time was perfect. Now, back in those days, in the Greco-Roman culture, they had this tradition. A father would designate a time for his son to mark the passage into adulthood. Normally, it would take place between the ages of 14 and 17. There was a ceremony involved, but a time was designated by the father And when that took place depended upon the readiness of the child. And it's kind of like Paul is saying, just as that Roman father designated the time when his son would come to maturity, God designated the time when he would send forth his son into the world. You perhaps have heard the saying, history is his story. History is really the story of God, the story of redemption. It is the story of God preparing the world for the arrival of the Savior. And I want you to notice several ways in which 
the time was full. Several ways in which the time was perfect for the birth and the arrival of Jesus. First of all, the time was right prophetically. The time was right prophetically. From Genesis forward, we have one prophecy after another pointing to and promising us a Messiah, a Savior. I mentioned last Sunday in Genesis 3, he's referred to as the seed of the woman, which I believe is the first reference in Scripture to the virgin birth. But it promises us that one day when this Messiah will come, that he will be a man. Later on in Genesis 12, we're told that this Messiah, this Savior who's going to save us from our sins and fix this broken world, that he will be a descendant of Abraham. You read a little further, you get to Genesis 49, and now it gets a little more specific. We're told that this Messiah will be of the tribe of Judah. We saw last Sunday in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that when the Messiah comes, he will be a descendant of David, a son of David. You get to the book of Micah. He tells us that the Savior will be born not just anywhere, but he will be born in Bethlehem. When you get to the prophet Daniel, he gets even more specific And without getting into all of the details, he tells us that 483 years after the announcement is made to rebuild the temple, the Messiah will arrive just as Jesus did. He prophesied even to the timing of the Savior's birth. Isaiah chapter 7 says a virgin will conceive. You get a little bit further, we're told this Messiah will actually suffer and die He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. This Messiah who will be born will suffer and die for us. And so the further you go in the scriptures, the more it is narrowed down, the more specific it becomes until finally all of these prophecies point to Bethlehem's manger Hundreds of prophecies made about Jesus, many of them revolve around his birth, and all of these prophecies were suddenly fulfilled that moment the baby Jesus gave out his very first cry. So yes, the time was right prophetically. The time was also right religiously. And when I say religiously, I mean that there was a great expectation in the Roman world in the first century that it was time for the Messiah to come. The people were hungering for his arrival. For many years, Israel had served false gods. The history of Israel, a big part of it really, is Israel just going back and forth between worshiping God and worshiping idols. And they would never be ready to receive the Messiah as long as they were worshiping idols. So you know what God did? He sent his people into exile. And the Babylonians came along and conquered the northern kingdom. Or the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. The Babylonians came and conquered 
the southern kingdom. And God sent his people into exile. And then 70 years later, when he brought them back to the promised land, do you know what we do not see anymore at that point forward? Idolatry. You realize what God was doing? God was purging idolatry from the land so that his people would be ready eventually for the arrival of Jesus. The time was right prophetically and religiously. The time was also right culturally. You see, Jesus could not have been born at a more opportune time. Because of the conquest of Alexander the Great, there was this common culture in much of the world, and so the first missionaries could contextualize the gospel. There was a common language in much of the world so that after Jesus died and rose again, those first missionaries could go out and with very few exceptions, they could preach in the common language of the people. But you know what else you had going on around this time? You had the arrival of the synagogues. You had these synagogues that popped up everywhere starting in the exile But what happened in the synagogues? Every synagogue had to have their own copy of the Scriptures. Every week they would come and they would hear and learn and they would also hear over and over again all of these prophecies about the Messiah that I had mentioned. And so they were constantly being reminded, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And it created this sense of great expectation amongst the people. The time was also right politically. The Roman Empire, believe it or not, helped pave the way for the arrival of Jesus. They built all those roads It's hard to believe, but I read uh, somewhere that they built 250,000 miles of roads, some of which you can still walk on today. Do you realize that in the first century, those were the roads that the first missionaries were able to walk, moving about quickly so that the gospel would spread rapidly? Roman laws protected the rights of citizens. Roman soldiers guarded the peace of Rome God even used Rome's leader to bring about the circumstances that were necessary for Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter 2, when Caesar Augustus issued his decree that everyone had to return to the home of their ancestors for a census to be counted, Well, he had one thing in mind. He wanted to count their heads so that he could increase their taxes. But I tell you that the driving factor behind that census was not greed. The driving factor behind that census was God. Because when Caesar Augustus issued that decree and everyone suddenly had to return to the land of their forefathers, that forced a young man named Joseph And that forced a young woman named Mary to travel to Bethlehem at just the moment when she would give birth. Scholars tell us that this was the first census of its kind, and I am sure that Caesar Augustus thought he had an original idea. It was not his idea. It was God's idea. And when he issued that decree, all he was doing 
was running errands for the prophets who had already spoken and said that it would be so. Caesar Augustus may have been in control of Rome, but I tell you, God was in control of Caesar Augustus. And so the time was right prophetically and religiously and culturally and politically, and God brought all of these things together at just the right time when Jesus was born. Listen, God does not operate on Eastern Standard Time. He operates on Eternal Standard Time. The birth of Jesus reminds us God never arrives early. He never arrives late. He always arrives on time. His timing is perfect, and that's never more clear than in the birth of Jesus Christ. Part of the miracle of Christmas really is God's perfect timing. Years ago, there was a famous baseball player by the name of Roger Maris, who played for the New York Yankees. And for a number of years, he held the record for the most home runs hit in a single season. I maintain he still holds that record, but that's another argument for another day. When Roger Maris retired, he was being interviewed, and someone asked him, what is the secret to hitting all of those home runs? And Roger Maris did not say the secret to hitting a home run is velocity. He did not say the strength to hitting home runs is strength or power. He said the secret to hitting a home run is split second timing. Because if you swing a fraction of a second early, it'll be foul. If you swing a fraction of a second late, it'll be foul. But if you hit that ball right on time, as he proved over and over again, it will be a home run. It's all about timing. And folks, Christmas is one of the greatest examples that we will ever see of God's perfect timing. God's perfect control over all things, even of history, how God orchestrates history and how God orchestrates everything, and I mean everything that touches our lives. You see, at Christmas, we see God orchestrating history, and this leads to a very major implication, a very personal implication for our lives. It forces us to ask ourselves a question if God can orchestrate all of history, will I trust him to orchestrate my life? Yes or no? If God can orchestrate all of history as we have seen in the birth of Christ, will I trust him to orchestrate the events of my life and all of the circumstances of my life in order to accomplish what he wants to accomplish and in order to do what is best for me. A number of years ago, I received uh, an email from someone who does not attend our church. You know, you'd be surprised how many people there are who never actually pass through our doors, but they watch online and they listen online. And there was one particular woman who for a significant amount of time, she would watch online and she would send me questions about the sermon that I had preached. She would regularly make comments 
about my messages. And of course, I'm not going to mention her name, and this was some time ago, but I want to read to you a particular email that she sent me once and then ask the question, how do we respond to that based on what we learn at Christmas? She sent me an email, and it said this, Pastor, I've been following you for some time now, and I've been getting close to this faith thing. That's what she called it, this faith thing. But then my daughter was recently attacked, and she was fortunate to even survive. If it had happened to me, that would have been one thing. But to see it happen to my daughter, and she closed by saying this, I don't know about this faith thing anymore. Now imagine that email is in your inbox. How do you respond to that? I tell you, if you don't believe in Christmas, I don't think you have much that you can say to that. If, on the other hand, you do believe in Christmas and you do believe that Jesus was born in the fullness of time, let me tell you, you have a lot to say to that. Because if you really understand what Christmas is all about, you have something to say because if Jesus' birth means anything at all, it means that God is sovereign. It means that God is in control even when we cannot see it, even when the things that happen in our life just do not make any sense. But if God can bring together all of these things, if God can bring together prophecy and history and culture and politics and all of that at just the right time for Jesus' birth, why wouldn't I believe that God can orchestrate the events of my life as well? If Christmas means anything, it means that whatever happens in my life, including the bad stuff, I can still trust Him. Because God still has a plan. And He does know what He's doing. And He has a purpose. And the question then becomes, will I accept and will I submit to God's plans? For my life. That's really the challenge that is before each and every one of us this Christmas and every single day. In the birth of Jesus, we see how God prepared the world by orchestrating history in the fullness of time. But we also see God preparing the world by humbling himself. By humbling himself. Now go back to verse 4. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Each word of this is so important. God sent his son, born of a woman. Now, what you have in verse 4, I believe, is the greatest act of humility that you will ever see by anyone, anywhere. No one ever humbled himself or herself as much as Jesus did at that first Christmas. Now, there are several ways in which we see God humbling himself. We see that he humbled himself at his birth. Notice it says God 
sent his son. Jesus was not created. He was not made. The Bible says that he was sent. He was sent implies that he was one place and he was sent somewhere else. That he was in heaven and that God sent him to earth. God sent his son. That refers to his pre-existence. That refers to his divinity. That refers to the fact that Jesus, as the Son of God, was eternally equal to the Father, but God willingly uh, submitted himself in sending Jesus from heaven to earth at that very first Christmas. God sent his Son, but notice that next phrase, born of a woman. Can I just ask the obvious question? Isn't that an odd thing to say? Born of a woman? Who isn't? Everyone born is born of a woman. Why does Paul say this? Why does he say it this way at this moment? He says it because God sent his son. That refers to his divinity. Born of a woman refers to his humanity. Thus, he was fully God and fully man, and both of these were necessary. Of course, we know that when Jesus was born, he wasn't born in a hospital. He wasn't placed in a crib. He was born in a barn and placed in a manger. And we do need to understand all that that involves, the fact that you could probably hear the sounds of animals all around them, that the aroma of urine and dung probably clung to them. I say no parent in their right mind would ever voluntarily consent to their son or their daughter being born under these putrid conditions. And so let's start with the very fact that Jesus was willing to step aside from heaven's glory to come into this world in such a way. What is that? That's the Son of God humbling himself for us. He humbled himself by his birth, but he also humbled himself by his submission to the law. Look at that last statement in verse 4. He was born under the law. Under the law means that Jesus was obligated to keep the law and to obey the law. Think for just a moment about the humility that that required to think that the same God who created the law, the same God who gave us the law, would then willingly, voluntarily submit himself to that law. And yet, this is why Jesus was born. Because we are law breakers. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have broken God's law, and because God is a righteous judge, our law-breaking must be punished. What is that punishment? The Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. This is what our sin our law-breaking has brought upon the world and upon us. So what did Jesus do? Paul says the Son of God was born. He was fully human, and as a human, 
He placed himself under the law so that he could keep the law on our behalf. It's as if Jesus took the test that we could never pass, and he took that test in your place and in mine. For 33 and a half years, he kept every single law, every single time. He obeyed the Father in every instance. He did the Father's will without fail. He's the only person who ever walked upon the face of this earth who never broke a single commandment, not one time. And it is because at Christmas Jesus was born under the law, and because he then kept that law, that he was able to lay down his life for humans who have broken that law. I can't die for your sins because I'm a sinner myself. I need someone to die for me. But Jesus, on the other hand, who was born under the law and who had no sin because he was without sin, he could exchange his innocence for our guilt. Our sin was placed upon him. The price for our sins he paid for all the evil things that we have done. He did that, the Bible says, for us. That's what Christmas is all about. He humbled himself by his birth. He humbled himself by his submission to the law, and he humbled himself by the cross. I want you to look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now notice the reason why Jesus was born of a woman and born under the law. It was so he could redeem those under the law. That word redeem means to buy, to purchase, many times to buy back something that had been lost. This word redeem, it was used many times in the first century when speaking of someone who was purchasing a slave, a point that will be very important in just a moment. But in this case, it refers to the price Jesus paid at the cross. 1 Peter 1 says that we are redeemed, same word, we are redeemed not with corruptible things, but by the precious blood of Jesus, the lamb without blemish and without spot. And so to redeem in verse 5, it's really the second part of a statement that Paul begins in verse 4. He was born... In verse 4, to redeem, verse 5, he was born, why? In order to die. You understand what Paul's saying? He's explaining to us that Jesus was born to die. He is the only person who was ever born in order to die. You and I are born and eventually we die. Jesus, however, was born to die. And notice that last part. Jesus was born. That's Christmas. To redeem. That's the cross. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Now when Paul says sons, of course that means sons and daughters. You know why he says sons in verse 5? 
because back in those days, in biblical days, the sons received the inheritance. But let me ask you this. What would happen in those days if a man did not have a son to whom he would leave his inheritance? Again, they had a very interesting custom in those days. In those days, a childless man would oftentimes solve this problem by purchasing a slave. Normally, someone would purchase a slave in order to own them. In this case, this person was purchasing a slave not to own them, but to free them. A man with no son would purchase a slave, and in that moment, that slave was trading, he was exchanging his slavery for sonship. And there was that moment when that legal transaction was completed. And in that moment, all of the previous obligations of the slave were nullified. All of the old debts of that slave were suddenly paid. And in that moment, that former slave was now a new member of a new family He was given the same name of that family, the same status with all of the same benefits and all of the same privileges as if he had been a son by birth. You see, this is a picture of what Jesus did for us. This, Paul says, is why Jesus was born. The Son of God in essence, became a slave so that we slaves can become children of God. This is a picture of what happens to us. And Paul said that Jesus was born so that we can experience two things. He said Jesus was born so that we can experience redemption and adoption. He was born so he could die redeeming us. He was born also that we would experience adoption as sons. And when we think about these two things there in verse 5, redemption and adoption, both of these things changes things for the child of God. Both of these things changes things in my life. For example, redemption changes my condition. Redemption means I'm no longer a slave, a slave to sin, a slave to the devil, a slave to the flesh, a slave to this world. Now I am free. Redemption changes my condition, but adoption changes my position. I'm not only free I'm a full-fledged child of God with all the rights and privileges that come with it. Now, this brings us to a question. If this is why Jesus was born, if this is what Christmas is really all about, if Christ was willing to humble himself in such a way so that he could redeem me and so that he could adopt me, can we not humble ourselves? Can we not humble ourselves? 
for the child of God, for the man of woman who, who follows Christ, is there any depth that is too low? One of the reasons why I think pride is so abhorrent to God and why God refuses to bless a proud heart is because pride, our human pride, runs so counter to the example of Jesus, especially when we see him at his birth. And listen, if we really understand Christmas, Christmas will not just be a holiday that we celebrate one week or one day out of the year. Christmas for us becomes a way of life. It becomes a way of life in which we humble ourselves. We humble ourselves by serving others. We humble ourselves by forgiving those who wrong us. We humble ourselves by loving our neighbors, including our enemies. We humble ourselves by being willing to accept any assignment God would give us, to go anywhere He would tell us to go, and do anything He would tell us to do. This is what Christmas is all about. And I really believe that when you take all of this and you put it all together, what we have just read in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, it's really the greatest summary of Christmas you will ever read anywhere. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Why was he born? To redeem us and to adopt us as sons. I tell you, no one ever offered you or will offer you a gift so great. Ever. And you can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You will never deserve it, but you can receive it by placing your faith in Christ and confessing Him as Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, we thank You for this brief but powerful summary of Christmas, what took place at Christmas, and why Jesus was born. Thank you again for loving us enough to send your Son in such a way that it would be, He would be born in a manger, that He would lower Himself from heaven to earth, to the cross, all the way to the tomb, and that on the third day, He rose again. But Father, I do pray that You would help us to take what we've read in Your Word today and that it would not just be information in our heads, but this would change how we think and change how we live and change how we interact with others around us. God, if we get this, it ought to change everything. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to trust you that you know how to orchestrate our lives. You know what you're doing. 
everything that comes into our lives, good and bad, even the hardest of things, you are sovereign, you are in control. We thank you that you can orchestrate our lives. We can trust you, therefore, with every part of our lives. And God, would you help us also to follow the example of Jesus that first Christmas, that we would humble ourselves. That you would eradicate any evidence of pride in our lives. Help us to truly see how Jesus humbled himself, that as followers of Christ, we would also humble ourselves every single day. God, forgive us where we often fail to do that, myself included. God, forgive us for that. But help us, O oh Lord, to learn from the example of Christ, to follow the example of Christ at Christmas. And God, if there's anyone here today who's never received this free gift of salvation, we thank you, O oh Lord, for purchasing redemption and adoption and for offering these blessings to us. God, I pray if there's anyone here today who's never received that gift, that this would be that day, that they place their faith in Christ that day they are born again. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Now, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, maybe you're here today, and you know right now it's time to receive that gift. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you willing to simply call upon him and say, Jesus, I need you. I confess, I admit, I've broken your law. I am a lawbreaker. I've done things I shouldn't have done. And it was your law, God, I was breaking. But I believe that Jesus came from heaven to earth, was born just like the Bible says that he was, and that he lived that perfect life in my place, and he went to the cross, and he took my sin upon himself. He died for me, and he rose again. And so, Jesus, right now, I will follow you. I give you my heart. I give you my life, all that I am, and all that I have, Jesus, is yours. Thank you for saving me. Now, if that's your prayer this morning, and you're taking that step of faith for the very first time, don't you dare leave here today without telling me. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. He said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. If you really mean it, if you're really serious, you won't leave here today without coming and say, Pastor, that's me. I'm receiving that gift of Jesus Christ. I'm placing my faith in him. As of this day, I will follow him. And this day, the 17th of December, 2023, is your spiritual rebirth day. You need to remember that. You need to mark that. You need to celebrate that. If today's that day, maybe you're watching here this morning and you can't approach me directly, but we want to hear from you as well, please send a text message to this number that you see on the screen. Write your name. We'll respond by sending you a link. When you get the link, click on it. That's our online connection card. And let us know the step of faith you are taking today or if you just want to know more or if you want to make an appointment uh, and ask questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we'll do our best uh, to help answer those questions uh, so that you can know Jesus and follow him and grow. Uh, but praise the Lord, it's been so good to be in the Lord's house today. 